Old Testament reading, Joshua 24. Our catechism lesson is found on page 872, the back of the red hymnal. Questions 45 through 48. Joshua 24, verses 1 through 27. Famous passage that we will use for some of our considerations tonight. Joshua 24. Here, once again, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Give your attention to its reading. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, and judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, The king of Moab prepared to fight against Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods uh, your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt, from that land of slavery, and performed those great signs before our eyes. 
He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. And the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Then our catechism lesson tonight, question 45 through 48 of the shorter catechism. Question 45, let's read the answers together with one voice. Question 45, which is the first commandment? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. What is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. What is forbidden in the first commandment? The first commandment forbiddeth the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. What are we specially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? These words before me in the first commandment teach us that God, who seeth all things, taketh notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. Joshua 24 does a beautiful job of highlighting God's activity in saving and redeeming his people. I have done, I did this for you, I did this for you. There's a prologue to all of that. There's the backstory, the history of all that God did for the people of Israel. And 
bringing them out of Egypt and in leading them into the promised land and driving out other nations uh, from before them. And uh, having God's activity put in, in the center there, then all of a sudden uh, in verse 14, Joshua shifts and, said now, and says, Now fear the Lord, serve him, uh, throw away these other gods that you have had in your past. And it all seems to flow naturally. And it is quite obvious to the people of Israel, well, uh, of course, this is what we would do when you put it that way. This is all the things that that God has done. Uh, But then Joshua turns to the people and he says, but you do not know all that you are going to have to do. I'm telling you that you are going to fail in living up to this call and this commandment. There are many things that, many principles that we could uh, expound upon from Joshua 24, but uh, one of the things, uh, many of the things that we'll focus on tonight is that uh, we are commanded universally to give our allegiance to this God. Yet at the same time, he, of course, as we recounted this morning, is a God who is good to his people. And yet, nevertheless, uh, how quickly and how easily we are brought into the sin of idolatry, the sin of serving something else, the sin of giving that devotion in our hearts, which is to be reserved for God alone, to anything else, a created thing, an object, a pleasure, something that we desire. The way in which Joshua speaks in that chapter to the people of God reminds us and it teaches us that uh, to serve God is an exclusive thing. God demands exclusivity, that we are to give our honor and our worship to him alone. To serve God is a, is a radical thing. There's a kind of a fork in the road that Joshua lays out. He says, here are all the other gods of your past, any of them that you have, your forefathers have served or whom you served in Egypt. And here is the God that has saved you. Go down this path and serve him. We see also that it's an enduring thing. It's something that you you won't be able to go and and serve this God for a little bit and and then all of a sudden sort of turn back and try something else for a while. You know, athletes are notorious for this. Something works for a while, whether it be a superstition, a pair of batting gloves or a pre-shot routine. It stops working and then they go and, and try something else for a little while. And they think they find something that works. It's not the way that religious devotion works. It is get to be given unto the true God and to him alone. But if we are faced with this problem of our flesh, this problem that Joshua names, that in our own strength we're not going to be able to endure in obedience to the principles of the first commandment, then what do we need? Well, we need the virtues and the graces that God gives to us by his spirit. It is in reliance upon God that he will create in us the kind of virtue and character needed to give unto him a life of worship. And so uh, tonight we're going to think first about the, the nature of the first commandment and God's command for exclusivity that we place him and him alone on the throne of our hearts. And then we will think about how that God creates virtuous worship in his people. He he commands exclusive worship 
and he creates virtuous worship. Let us consider these things together. And if I go for the water a few extra times tonight, I've got something in my something kind of in my throat. So don't be alarmed if you see me going for that again and again. First, exclusive <clears throat> worship. The commandment, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the, the language there, obviously the, the catechism tells us what that means, that before me, God is displeased with us having any other god at all. But the way that it's worded, we might think, well, maybe it's, it's, you're supposed to have the, the God of Scripture kind of first in line, and then you can have many others uh, below him. But that's, of course, not what the commandment means. It's a command to worship and serve God and to worship and serve him alone. This is illustrated in Deuteronomy 6, which is what uh, Jesus quotes to Satan when Satan is tempting him in the wilderness. Satan demands that Jesus fall down and, and worship him. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone, or serve him only. Now it's interesting the way that uh, Satan had put that to Jesus. He, he didn't mention that uh, also denounced the Father. But of course, we understand that, that that is the way that worship works. That we, are to, we give ourselves to a singular figure. The Heidelberg Catechism does such a great job of teaching this in its exposition of, of the first commandment. What are we to do in, in obedience to the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry and sorcery and superstitious rites and prayer to saints or to other creatures that I rightly know the only true God and trust him alone. And look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently. Love and fear and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. It's a beautiful exposition of this command to have an undivided heart. We experience or we come across that language often in scripture, don't we? The command to have a pure heart. As Heidelberg says, we love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. We are called to be undivided in our worship towards God. This is in the summary statements of the law, too. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. It is a call. Now, certainly, God would want us to not have a life that is filled with sin, but they're, we're never going to be perfectly pure in this life. But all of these commandments are uh, calling us to have, uh, to be not divided in our devotion to him. And what we are doing when we are seeking to obey the first commandment is that we are acknowledging God's sovereignty. We are acknowledging that he alone is God. We are acknowledging that there is not some pantheon of gods uh, dwelling up in the realm of the heavens. In ancient cultures, this was the way that you thought about it. There are many gods out there. This may be our god, but there are other gods. And the various other gods would have to be appeased for different reasons. The whole of religious life was almost like a cat and mouse game where you're trying to be in the favor of as many gods as possible and trying to avoid the ire of as many gods as possible, but, or, of course, so they thought. Right? 
this cat and mouse game was really just a farce. It wasn't reality at all. The beauty of coming to the light of Scripture is to see there is God alone. And we acknowledge Him as God alone. And our religious or spiritual life is not some kind of cat and mouse game to try to uh, appease as many gods as possible and avoid the attention of other gods. But rather, we acknowledge one God and we acknowledge Him alone. Nothing, therefore, lies outside of His control. This is what we talked about this morning. When we think about the sovereignty of God, we think about the goodness of God. What do we do? Because of that, will we humbly and patiently wait upon him for all things? There are many implications of this. We'll tease them out a little bit later as we close. But the principle of your worship is, can be illustrated the same way as romantic love. The idea that you can romantically love and maintain a devotion that is fitting to multiple people goes against the sensibilities of all people. We know that this cannot be done. And we know that the, the way that love works, you, you cannot be divided multiple ways. Why? Well, because in romance, there's a mutual giving that is to culminate, of course, in marriage. And marriage is exclusive for that very reason. In this kind of relationship, there's a vulnerability to the other. We open ourselves up and make ourselves vulnerable in a way that uh, the mutual trust can only operate when it's one to one. It's a devotion that, of course, cannot be shared. A man cannot tell his wife that he truly loves her as his own, but he also loves many others. As, as hard as people may try to convince themselves this is possible, it is not. The same is true in religious devotion. True worship True devotion can only be given to one. We are not capable of dividing our devotion in that way. This, thinking about then this call to exclusivity, this call of exclusivity, the two sins that are being forbidden here in the first commandment are atheism and idolatry. People might deny the existence of God either philosophically or practically, and then idolatry would be placing something other than God in the place of our heart that is to be reserved for him. To give a devotion or love or an adoration to something other than God. The Bible, and when it comes to atheism, the Bible seems much more concerned with practical atheism than philosophical atheism. Practical atheism is those who might give lip service to the idea of God, those people who might say, well, yeah, I guess it's possible, or even, yes, I believe in God, but they live as though there is no God, which is ultimately to say what? You live as though there will be no judgment, there will be no reckoning, there will be no day that makes all things right. Psalm 36 says this, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. I'm never going to be brought to judgment for the things that I do. I'm going to get away with everything. To deny God is to deny reality and most dangerously to deny future judgment. We must remember that God will render to each one according to 
his works, but blessed is the one who has washed his robe in the blood of the Lamb. The other main sin forbidden in the first commandment is idolatry, which is to set something up in the place of God, or to give something the devotion and love reserved for God alone. Wilhelmus Brockel says there are three basic kinds of idolatry, and it's an insightful division, so I'll share them with you. The first kind of idolatry is blatant idolatry, and that's essentially the idolatry of false religions, those who would worship an explicitly false God other than the God of Scripture. The second is what you might call moderate idolatry, which is not to say it's more acceptable, but moderate idolatry would be uh, having something set up alongside of God to which one would render a, a type of divine honor or worship. When, we, uh, when the Reformed confessions and catechisms uh, consider these kinds of things, the most often things that they will point out is praying to saints or uh, the kind of system that, have, that had gotten into the medieval church. Uh, in our context, you would have the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church who have uh, kind of a, a whole system that's a kind of a superstition that exists under uh, their more classical definitions of God. So someone would pray to a certain saint when a certain thing is needed. For example, you put your house up for sale and there's a a patron saint of property sales and you can pray to that saint. And the thought is through some kind of devotion or appeasement is going to quicken the sale of the house. You see very quickly how this becomes a, a form of superstition. And how it's a departure from the acknowledgement that all things come from God. All things are ordained according to his good and perfect will. Thus, what we are called to do is trust in him and him alone. And to look to him alone for all things. One of the great illustrations of the, the first commandment is in the book of Revelation. And in these heavenly visions that the Apostle John is giving, he's confronted with uh, Christ, the risen and exalted and reigning Christ, and he falls down before Christ in worship. Later on in the book, both in chapter 19 and in chapter 21, he is tempted or he begins to fall down in worship before an angel. Now, an an angel is certainly a very fierce and mighty and glorious creature. But as soon as John does that, the angel says, don't do that. Do not fall down before me. Worship God alone. A very explicit affirmation of the deity of Christ, but also an affirmation of this uh, first commandment. To whom do we render divine worship? We render it unto God alone. So that's moderate idolatry. And in order to fend that off in our lives, we remind ourselves we must trust God alone and look to him alone for every good thing. The third and most insidious kind of idolatry for our lives is called refined idolatry. There are basically two kinds of refined idolatry. The first is when we trust in means before we trust in God. So here's an example of that. An example would be you are becoming overly concerned with getting 
a, uh, a raise or um, promotion at your job. And so you become obsessed with improving your relationship with your boss because you believe that if you can make this happen, then that's going to put the wheels in motion so that you can get your promotion or your raise. Now, there's nothing, possibly nothing wrong with trying to present yourself in a good way at work and trying to show yourself to be a hard worker. That's not what we're talking about. When your heart begins to trust in the means... And it says, this is actually what's going to tip the scales in my favor. You are committing refined idolatry because you are not looking to God in all things. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Jeremiah 9, wonderful verse to commit to memory, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. So that's the first kind of refined idolatry. We trust in the means rather than God. The second form of this refined idolatry is simply when we would take some object in this life, some pleasure in this life, and that occupies the throne of our hearts. We adore and love that thing the way that we ought to adore and love God. An addiction, an obsession, those would fall into this category. It's something that so holds you that you become enslaved to it. You are obsessed with it. You think that you love and adore it, but you can't get away from it. Money is one of the most common enslavers in this way. And Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon, because if your life becomes about it, you will serve it and you will be enslaved to it. We need to understand the way that that kind of refined idolatry can creep into our lives. We might trust the means and we might become obsessed with the earthly pleasures in and of themselves. So how do you worship God in accordance with the first commandment? Well, you love him. You love him. The Israelites loved God as they reflected upon all that he had done for them. Reflect upon the things that God has done for you. How can you not love and want to serve this God? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We are to come to God as needy children, filled with joy to know him as our father. God has this tender kind of love for us, and we are to reciprocate it. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Hosea 11, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. So Joshua recounts all that God has done for them. He says, serve this God, choose him, and always do so. That, and that leads us to the second way that we worship God exclusively. We are always faithful. We are called to always be faithful. First, we are filled with a love towards this God for the things that he has done, for the redemption that he has accomplished for us. 
But love for God is more than just an emotional feeling. We're called to love the Lord of God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, but love is, goes beyond just our feelings. It is faithfulness when something is put to the test. So one person writing about the first commandment says, To love God means to stick with your choice. In marriage, feelings ebb and flow. And of course, we are expected to remain faithful. So we love God, but we are faithful even when feelings fade. Next, we keep his words. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And 1 John chapter 5 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. What does it flow out of? It flows out of our love for him, desire to please him. And then uh, lastly, how uh, do we worship God exclusively? We, we worship Jesus Christ. Really, that is what the first commandment is trying to get us to. And the New Testament worship of God is worshiping the triune God in and through Jesus Christ. All of the language of the New Testament epistles is leading us to this conclusion that Jesus Christ is himself the God whom we are to worship. One theologian puts it this way, As the Son of God, who by his redemptive work obtained the highest name, Jesus Christ as Lord, all divine worship belongs to him. The honor belonging to the Father must be given to the Son also. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The knees that must bow to the Father bow to Christ as well. The choice Yahweh demands, Christ demands too. And so it is not a juke away from the first commandment to command us to worship Jesus Christ. It is the fulfillment of the first commandment. We can only worship God correctly in Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then secondly, uh, our consideration tonight is that we must worship God exclusively, but uh, God must create these virtues in us so that we can live according, in accordance with this first commandment. The first is this. We must know God correctly. We must know God truly, as the Catechism says. Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul says this to the believers in Colossae. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Later on in chapter 3, he says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are to put on the new man, which begins with reliance and trust and faith, and a faith that God will fill our minds. He will renew our minds in and through his word and by the power of his spirit. But we must have a desire to grow 
in knowledge. That's the posture of the Christian. I want to know God more. I want to know him. I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection in my life. I want to, to be more acquainted with this, with this God. And of course, we rely upon God to fill us with that knowledge. We must, as we talked about, we must love God. We must love God. We think about the, the vows that we take at profession of faith. One of the vows, do you love the Lord? Think about Jesus and his words to Peter. Uh, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be cursed. But of course, once again, we are thrown back on uh, the reality that we need our hearts to be renewed by God. He creates this love for him in us. We must fear him. We must fear him. Now, the fear of God is not a terror of God. It's a, it's a filial fear. It comes from recognizing his power. It comes from seeing his goodness, understanding that he is a refuge, but understanding that uh, it is utterly dangerous to fall into the hands of the living God and to be reminded of how blessed we are to be counted among his people. Psalm 34, fear the Lord, O you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. Next, uh, we worship God and serve him alone as we patiently trust him. In times of trial, we acknowledge his sovereignty. We talked about that a lot this morning. Daniel 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Ecclesiastes 7, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. First Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We patiently trust God as the one who is sovereign. In all things we look to him as our sovereign ruler. One theologian says this, one will thus be at rest in him and be quiet without fear, being satisfied with the outcome in all things, since it will be according to his goodwill toward us and according to his pleasure. We shall thus permit him to care for us and shall depend upon him, using all the means because he has ordained them and desires that we shall use them. We shall use them to reach that goal and to attain to that result which is according to the Lord's decree and which no creature can change. We cannot change the will of God. He has ordained all things and thus we rely upon him as truly sovereign. Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. For God alone, he only is my rock and my salvation. Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. We rely upon God to create these virtues of love, 
and fear and patience and trust and a desire for knowledge. Knowing that all of these things are going to redound to where we uh, always are looking to God and looking to Him alone. We'll close just with a couple or just one main consideration. is that to obey the first commandment is to be free. To obey the first commandment is to be free. So there's a lie in our age and in our culture. The lie of the nuns, N-O-N-E. Those who say, well, I have uh, no religious um, declaration. I have no religious affiliation. I'm kind of my own person. I'm kind of free in that way. And there is a lie that goes along with that. Because when we understand what we were created to be and who we were created to be, why were you created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? You cannot be truly human unless you are serving the God of Scripture. You cannot be the person whom you were designed to be unless you are joined in fellowship and communion with this God. So the first commandment, many people come uh, to the first commandment and find it to be rather restrictive and demanding. Worship the Lord your God and worship Him alone and love Him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. But instead of seeing it as restrictive and demanding, we need to learn to see it as the only way to be free. To live with your devotion towards anything else. You see, human beings will worship something. We will worship something at all times. And the only way to be free is to be joined to the God of the Bible. One author puts it this way, speaking of the first commandment. To be free of idols, you must live with God. Otherwise, you remain in slavery. It makes no fundamental difference whether you kneel in terror before images of deities or stand arrogantly on your own two feet. You either glorify God or you enthrone a creature. Man stands free only when he is willing to live by grace. Otherwise, he stoops like a slave, oppressed by the powers of the world. You will glorify God or you will enthrone a creature. Those are your two options. The first commandment reminds us what we were made to do, what we were made for, to love and serve and honor our Creator. And He has allowed us to do that in and through His grace. So I love that. Man stands free only when he is willing to live by grace, only when we give ourselves to the work of God in us. Only when we come to the redemption that he offers in Christ. Only when we leave ourselves to the side and trust not in ourselves, but look to a savior outside of us. Look to the righteousness of God the Son given to us by faith. Leave all that we are to the side. Give ourselves fully to him. It is then and only then that we can be free. Otherwise, we stoop like a slave, oppressed by the powers of the world. So may we remember the law of God, this first commandment. May we remember how it gives to us the vision of true freedom, worshiping and serving God in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
and your truth. We pray that you will plant it deep in our hearts. And we pray that you will give us rest in Christ here as we close this Lord's Day, the day of resurrection, the day in which we have been given a foretaste of heavenly glory. We thank you and we praise you. We rely upon you and we come to you with empty hands, asking that you would fill them with your grace and power and love and the virtues that we need to live in a way that pleases you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.